0: I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of our Lord.
1: And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Wow, what a joyful time of worship on this Easter Sunday morning. Well, one of the things you may not realize, I have the privilege of teaching Old and New Testament at Montreat, and the Old Testament barely deals with death. There is no uh, in the Old Testament uh, solution given to death, only anecdotal references to what happens to someone when they die. Whereas in the New Testament is where the rubber meets the road, Death is fully engaged, and uh, the writers are going to do what they can to make sense of what happens to you when you die. I've noticed through the years of teaching that my students can trek with me who are unbelievers in the Old Testament rather easily, but when we get to the New Testament is when they begin to get a bit fidgety because of its claims. I have right now a student who sits to my left, not far from me, in one of my classes who is, by his own admission and claim, an atheist. And he will mutter things under his breath as I teach. I'm so glad he sits there in class. There is a reality that he deals with, that every human being deals with, that you must find a solution to. There are two. One is the problem of sin. Why is it that I do things I don't want to do? Second is the problem of pain. Why is it that my body feels as it feels at times, and that pain ultimately is going to lead to my death? This, every person who thinks must engage at some point must figure out a solution to the problem. And so it is that the New Testament gives it. Just a week ago today, I wasn't here. Physical pain hitting me in my stomach and just uh, sending me to the sofa for two days. You have come in here this morning with various levels of pain, Pain is real. Sometimes it's a surprise. At other times, you should expect it. If you ran the 5K yesterday and you're hurting today, well, that's fairly normal. Death is the same, isn't it? Sometimes it catches us by surprise. It is the car accident and the phone call. And the person we loved dearly, just like that, is no longer with us. There was not a chance for goodbye perhaps they were young and healthy or death can be slow it can be a diagnosis that leads to a prognosis that leads to various treatments and and then death comes or perhaps it's Alzheimer's and it seems your loved one died twice once when they lost their ability to think as they once did the second time when their body finally gave out. What I want to share with you this morning is we view death differently. If it is a young person, it's tragic to us. If it is an old person, it is a welcomed relief. But Scripture says, For all of us who follow Jesus death is a welcomed relief for the teenager snatched away in the prime of his life. And for the old person who no longer knows his or her name, death for them is a welcomed relief. According to scripture, you say, how so two principles that I think will get us there. Number one, Your body was not made for eternity. Here in this passage, Paul uses several words to describe our current bodies. None of them are flattering. They're perishable, they're dishonorable, they're weak, and they're natural. Those are the words Paul uses to describe all of humanity. The healthiest. Best-looking, the most fit, the smartest, the wealthiest of all of us are at best described as perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural. Contrary to the Corinthians who had a low view of the body, we come at this from a different perspective. We in our culture today have a heightened view I would say, of our bodies. Perhaps this has been brought on by, or at least facilitated by, social media and by the availability of cameras now in our hands. I'm reading from an article uh, in Psychology Today um, from April of last year. In this article, the name of it is, Are You Taking Too Many Selfies?, I'm assuming all of us in the room know what a selfie is, so I won't uh, define that for you as the article does. But uh, what emerges from the article is a new scale of measuring one's um, interaction with his or her phone. And it's called, and I'm not lying, selfitis. Selfitis Behavioral Scale now exists. After a study of 400 people and their phones and their selfie activity, it was determined that there are six or seven reasons people take selfies. Number one, attention-seeking makes you feel more popular. Number two, mood modification. Uh, You feel better after doing it. Mood modification, incidentally, is involved in every single addiction. Uh, You do what you do to change your mood. Number three, self-confidence. You can, as some people do, enhance your selfie after you take it before you post it online. So you look better in picture than you do in real life to enhance self-confidence. Number four, social competition. It increases one's social status to post a selfie and to get more follows more views they matter the next reason subjective conformity Uh, you do it because everybody else is everybody's doing selfies today and so do you and finally environmental enhancement Uh, this is taking selfies to create memories Or trophies of oneself you run a marathon so you take a picture of yourself at the at the finish line it creates this memory for you some people now take so many selfies that they don't remember being anywhere they have to look back at the pictures to recall how it was like because they're taking pictures the whole time well, out of this has developed then, or they discovered, uh, from these 400 uh, participants, 223 of them take between one and four selfies a day. So, 223 take one to four a day. 141 take five to eight selfies a day. And uh, more, uh, 36 six took more than eight selfies a day. All right, so they developed from this categories of self-itis. So I'll let you self-diagnose this morning how bad are you when it comes to self-itis. You are considered borderline if you take a selfie up to three times a day, but do not post it on social media. You just simply take a picture of yourself, but you don't post it. You're borderline. You have acute self According to psychology today, if you take a selfie at least three times a day and post each of those on social media, that is acute self-itis. You have chronic self-itis. If you possess the urge to take selfies all day and post these on social media at least six times in a day, you have chronic self-itis. So wherever you are, Perhaps there's some action that is needed. Suffice it to say that Paul writes to people who have a low view of the body, but this message travels through time today to people who have a very high view of their bodies. And as much as you and others may admire your body, it is not suited for the life to come. Paul says it's perishable. It will decay. One day your body will not be as it is now. It it will decay. It will uh, go into the earth if it's buried, and it will no longer be as you see it now. In the last three or four weeks, I've been with four different people at their death. I have held their cold hands and I have prayed with their families as their families said their final goodbyes to these dear loved ones. I must say to you that not one of them looked as good at that moment as they did in their life. Death has a way of taking the honor away. That's the next phrase, sown in dishonor. It may never have occurred to you, but no one honors the sowing of a seed. We don't have sowing celebrations. We have harvest celebrations, don't we? We celebrate a tree and its fruit or a plant and what comes up. It also may never have occurred to you that seeds are innately future-oriented. A seed is innately future-oriented. A seed does not reflect back on its past, but it anticipates a future where there will be fruit that comes from it. When we die, we are sown in dishonor. Uh, A seed goes into the dirt that isn't honorable. So it is with us when we die. Paul says in verse 36, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Well, when I read this, I know that seeds don't die in the ground. That's a common myth of botany. Well, then is Paul missing it here because... He says, do you not know that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies? So I do what I always do when I have questions about this arena uh, when I'm sermon prepping, and that is to email Mike Spath. Uh, some of you know Mike. He is a biology professor. So I emailed him, and I said, okay, Mike, tell, tell me what happens to a seed. I went on a hike A few years ago with Mike, I thought we were just going to take in the beauty. No, we looked at every uh, ecosystem along the way. He just walked by and described this one and described that one. Well, then I get this email back, and I think I understand uh, about 12% of it. Um, And so I'm going to share just what he shared, uh, just a tiny little part of it. He says, yes, seeds do not die as we understand death. They get buried in the ground in a dormant state. Metabolic metabolic activity is not happening. In other words, there are no or almost no chemical reactions taking place in the seed. He says metabolism and energy use is one of the characteristics of life. Other characteristics of life are present, including the fact that seeds are made of cells. DNA is in the cells, and the potential to reproduce, grow, and develop is there. But then this is what he says, if the human body was to mimic the state of the seed, it would be dead. So what Paul is saying here, if you look at his verse, he is saying that something must go into the ground and die in order to come to life. And in the very next verse, he says, and what you sow is the body. The body has to die. It is sown in dishonor. It is also sown in weakness. That word means feeble and frail. Our bodies, even in their healthiest state, are feeble and frail. You say, how do you know that? The wrong fall, the wrong car accident, and everything you have could be gone. How quickly? Just like that. So it is with our bodies. Finally, they are natural. What does that mean? As opposed to spiritual, it means that on some days you try as hard as you can to do the right thing and you end up doing the wrong thing. Sin lurks. Sin is attractive to you. Still in this life, you have a desire to sin. These bodies were not made for eternity. Could you imagine the body you're in now 200 years from now? Ugh. No. No, that, that that wouldn't be good. You know, that just wouldn't be good. It, it wouldn't last too long. But secondly, Jesus' body was made for eternity, principle number two. Jesus' body was made for eternity. Notice what happens. Paul begins to describe the first Adam and the last Adam. Who are these people? The first Adam is Adam that God created. Put him in the garden and breathe into him the breath of life. The second Adam is a reference to Jesus himself. All right, so let me dive down deep for a little bit. And if you're new to church, I think you'll get this and enjoy it. It may never have occurred to you that Jesus never had a body until he was born in Bethlehem. Prior to Bethlehem, Jesus had no body. God is a spirit. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit coexisted in wonderful harmony in heaven. All spirit, none of them have bodies. Well, that's why we call the incarnation the incarnation in the flesh. It is Jesus taking on human flesh. This is also what makes the love of Christ so profoundly deep that he would take on this kind of body with its frailties. He would take on a body like yours and like mine. It would age. He was a baby and then a little boy, and then he grew up to be a man. He went through puberty. He experienced the uh, challenges of life as any of us does. He became hungry. He became weary when he was tried and beaten. And that cat of nine tails came around his back. It, it hurt. When the, the nails went through his, his wrist, It hurt him badly. He became one of us. That body died. On the cross, Jesus died for your sins and mine. And then that begs the question, if he had a body like mine, then why does his death matter? why couldn't someone else die? Great question. Great question. He was the God man. Yes, Jesus became hungry, but but one day when all of the people were gathered around and the disciples wondered how they would feed them, Jesus found a little boy who had his lunch and it was fish and bread. And he took the fish and the bread and fed 5,000 with uh, just a few fish and couple loaves of bread he he got tired he was traveling with his disciples between Jerusalem in the south and Galilee in the north and they went through Samaria and Jesus became weary it was noon in the middle of the day and he sat down by a well to rest he was tired his body was tired And there came a woman whose middle name had to be shame, because she came in the middle of the day to draw water from the well. She should have been there early in the morning before the heat of the day, but she came in the middle of the day so as not to see the other women who perhaps laughed at her and mocked her, and she... Uh, was there drawing water, and Jesus asked her for water. He was thirsty. He wanted water from the well. They engage in a conversation, and this wearied-bodied Jesus looked at this woman, and as she described it later, told her everything she did. Could he be the Christ, she asked. He became weary, but forgave a Samaritan woman of her awful, Sexual sin. He grieved the death of his friend Lazarus and wept and walked over to the tomb and called his name and Lazarus came out. He got tired on the boat and went down underneath to fall asleep. And when the storm came up, the the disciples roused him, said, do you not care? And he did. And he simply spoke and the winds and the waves calmed down. He was the God-man. And so he could die on the cross for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, perfection died. He never sinned. He never lied. He never cheated on his income taxes. He never stole from his employers. He never looked at pornography. He never gossiped. He never coveted his neighbor's belongings. He never envied another's position or power. He never committed adultery. He never worried about tomorrow. And then he was buried. His body was sown. It was sown perishable. We know it was because Mary Magdalene came early on Sunday morning to put some perfume on it and spices so it wouldn't stink. It was sown in dishonor. His back was beaten. His side was pierced through. His head was scarred with thorns. His body was sown in dishonor. His body was sown in weakness. He fell under the weight of the cross, trying to carry it up the hill. His body was sown in remarkable weakness, but it was raised imperishable. It was raised in glory. It was raised in power. It was raised a spiritual body. And because his body was sown and raised as it was, our bodies, which will be sown the same way, will be raised imperishable, will be raised in glory, will be raised in perfection. Our bodies will be like his. Wow. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, did you see that, body? Lowly body to be like his what kind, class? What kind? Glorious. Glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things. To himself, You see, as I look around the room, I see Logan sitting down front, very healthy. Doesn't occur to me that this is even a need for him. But then I see Caroline battling cancer, struggling, she told me this morning, to breathe. And I say, come, glorious Father. But what I miss is that Logan needs that glorious body as much as she. That's the truth. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life giving spirit. Adam lived, Jesus gave life. Paul goes on to say in verse 47, the first man was from the earth, talking of Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what kind of image was that? Let me share as our team comes. What kind of body Jesus had. So Jesus is resurrected. That awful marred body is resurrected. Not too many hours later, he, is, uh, he, he finds two of his followers who are walking on the Emmaus Road. They're dejected because their man Jesus is dead. They're commiserating with one another over his untimely death. When all of a sudden, unknown to them, Jesus steps up. And Jesus steps up beside them and starts walking beside them and listens in. And they look at him and they say, he says to them, what are you talking about? And they look at him and say, have you not been in town the last few days? Have you not heard what just happened? And so they tell that they thought Jesus was the one, the Messiah. And then Jesus opens his mouth and begins to explain to them himself from the Old Testament. They sit to eat, and when they do, their eyes are open. They recognize Jesus, and in that moment, he's gone. All right, tuck that away. Where does he go? He goes back to Jerusalem. The disciples are meeting in a room, and Thomas is there, doubting Thomas. He, he can't quite grasp this whole resurrection thing. And so Jesus walks into the room but decides not to use the door. All right, that's a little freaky if it were to happen today. He walks into the room but decides not to use the door. And so when he does, Thomas has said, unless I can see with my eyes and touch with my hands, I will not believe. And Jesus, walking through the room, uh, walking through the wall, if you will, coming into the room, says, Thomas, here, check, check it out. This is where they put the sphere in. Thomas, touch. Touch. This is where they put the nails in. Thomas believes. That, as best I can understand, is the kind of body we get post-resurrection. Why does it matter? A body that is both body and spirit, a body that can be here and then be there just like that, If you fast forward to the end of the book in Revelation, this may never have occurred to you, and if it hasn't, I'm about to blow your ever-loving mind. But the new Jerusalem heaven is pictured just like this. It is a city that comes down out of heaven. It is approximately 1,400 miles wide, High and deep. If it came down here, it would stretch all the way to Dallas. There are gates on each side, three on each side. Gates of pearl that never open, never close. There's an angel at each gate. That city will come down on earth now this is my understanding of the word new in the book of revelation it's the word renewed meaning purified burned with fire made new again meaning that I believe the new the new earth will be things you've seen already but unmarred by human existence. According to John in Revelation, that city will come down, and nations will come in and out of those gates. Why? There are no longer boundaries as there are today. You won't need a passport to go from here to there because there is one king. His name is Jesus, and we're all citizens of one kingdom, and we will come in and out. There is no night. There is no sun because Jesus himself will be the light of that city. And all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will come to and go and come. And I'm just convinced that I can hang out with you there and enjoy time with you. And if we want to go to see the Himalayas, we won't have to get on a plane. We can just be there and we can take that in in its joy and in its beauty and in its splendor. Jesus said do not let your heart be troubled Neither let it be afraid In my father's house are many Mansions if it were not so I would have Told you that I go to prepare a place For you So so what What's taken? what's he doing In addition to interceding For us building this City That's our future Say, Jay, I think you've lost your mind. Have at it. It's in Scripture. So what does this mean? It means this, that if you're in this room this morning and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you at your death will not receive a glorified body. Destination, according to the same author who received the revelation from God, is hell apart from God, separated forever. If you do not know Christ, do not delay. Trust Him today receive his forgiveness of your sins be washed be cleansed would you bow your heads for one moment all over the room nobody looking around camera is focused in on me right now catching no one in the crowd all over the room if you sit here this morning and you say Jerry I came into this place lost without jesus but today i'd like to trust him as my savior and walk out with the promise of a glorified body one day and eternity with god in heaven with my family and friends who know him today i'm giving my life to christ would you just simply slip up your hand i'm not going to embarrass you in any way i want to pray for you If you say, today, I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior, just slip up your hand in the room this morning. Any of you, thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Is there anyone else You say, today, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior? the two of you who slipped up your hand this morning saying today is the day I give my life to Christ say what must I do to be saved confess that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead a simple prayer like this dear Jesus I know that I am a sinner I am sorry for my sins. Today, I give my life to you. Thank you for dying and resurrecting and coming back for me. If you have made that decision today, either while we sing or after this service, there are folks, we have trained volunteers, our staff. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Just make your way to the front at the end of our time together or during this song. Let's stand. Let's worship.